Welcome to the DLA Piper Infrastructure Podcast. In this new series from DLA Piper, we explore how infrastructure, transport and construction are adjusting to a post-COVID-19 world. We examine the biggest challenges ahead and how businesses must evolve to meet them, both in the short and in the longer term. We discuss the impact on digital infrastructure, transport in a world of social distancing, aviation's long road to recovery, boosting construction and sustainable mobility. Hello, I'm Martin Nelson-Jones, a partner at DLA Piper and head of the firm's infrastructure, construction and transport sector. I'm joined by my partners, Colin Wilson, who's head of our international projects practice, and Howard Basford, who is our UK head of infrastructure. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the future of infrastructure in a post-COVID-19 world. For decades, infrastructure has been valued for its relative stability and predictability. But COVID-19 has turned that on its head, both in the short term and the longer term. The crisis has highlighted the essential role of infrastructure in our economies and societies, but it has also highlighted uncertainties and vulnerabilities that have perhaps not been fully appreciated and valued before. The crisis has also created significant opportunities for investors and other stakeholders, which we'll be discussing later on in this uh, episode. It may well have changed attitudes to risk, especially for those asset classes which have been hardest hit. But will investors and lenders turn their backs on infrastructure as an asset class as a result of the COVID-19 crisis? We don't believe so. Different countries are at varying stages of the crisis and are reacting differently. And it's too early to say how and when economies and societies in various countries will return to normal or exactly what that new normal will look like. But despite the uncertainties, we're going to make some tentative predictions in this podcast about longer term implications for the infrastructure sector. We're also going to look at the respective roles of governments, investors and corporates in the infrastructure sector and how these roles might change in the light of the COVID-19 crisis. So where are we now and how did we get here? The impact on infrastructure has been profound and in many cases highly visible. Uh, We've seen the impact of social distancing on travel uh, and on work patterns the impact of changes of behaviour and of various government restrictions, the impact on leisure and tourism, business travel, commuting. These behavioural changes have all significantly impacted the infrastructure space and may well continue to do so. They may also prove to be a catalyst for technological advances as people cope with the changes coming out of the pandemic and may also exacerbate the pre-existing climate change concerns. We've also seen governments and companies looking at their supply chains and we've seen an impact on uh, trading patterns, which again will impact the infrastructure involved in trade and transport. Colin, would you like to expand a bit on how you see the impact on transportation? 
Thank you, Martin, <clears throat> and, and thank you for that introduction. I think, you know, as, as you say, the pandemic has unfortunately had a dramatic impact across infrastructure businesses, and especially those that depend on, on economic activity, and, and none more so, therefore, in relation to the transport sector, where Unfortunately, we've seen volumes and revenues collapse virtually overnight as a result of COVID-19, especially in the rail, the bus sectors uh, and probably aviation being hit the hardest in the transportation market. The crisis has very much highlighted, in my view, the critical importance of service delivery of transportation for the population uh, and what the future will look like is going to really need to have some far-sightedness as new projects will exist in a changed world. What will the tube system look like? What will railways look like? How will they work in the future? At the moment, we're seeing skeleton services, but what's it going to be like when large numbers of people return to work and how resilient will those services be? But frankly, what is next in the changed world that we're all going to be living in? I think modelers don't yet know how people will behave. There's a lot of speculation about whether people will work more from home, how cities, the infrastructure usage will change. Will there be lower footfall and whether will people will choose to actually stay for home or indeed whether the homes that they exist in now within the cities are people looking to move further afield to get the benefit of green space in, in lockdowns going forward. So interesting times and a lot of activity will need to be taking place to uh, make sure we have a resilient transport system going forward that is fit for purpose. Great, thank you. And how do you see the impact on the healthcare sector in the longer term? In healthcare, I mean, the pandemic has made us all acutely aware, I think, of our own personal health more than ever before. And frankly, while the response has been phenomenal in relation to COVID-19 and what the governments across the world have done in relation to their health sectors to deal with the impact of the, the pandemic, I think what is clear, there is a need for fundamental change in, in the responses of how and where healthcare is provided. The demand for new design of facilities for different sorts of training for the medical profession, the supply of PPP and and testing and treatments has all made us look at, you know, how do we repurpose the healthcare facilities, the beds, the delivery of elective care, for example, at dedicated facilities, the use of AI. And government has very much, uh, from the UK to Australia, put in place different payment and partnership models and rapid regulatory change to accommodate this. So what has been done rapidly over the last few months in each country across the globe now needs to, in effect, enable everybody to learn the lessons that have been learned in those past few months and apply it to the healthcare infrastructure going forward to make a success for the future, but more importantly, resilient for future COVID-related or similar pandemics that may occur. So a lot of change in the short term modern for healthcare, but actually I think it sets the path forward for a lot of work that still needs to be done. Thanks, Colin. And Howard, I mean, governments around the world have been placing a lot of emphasis on construction and building to help to stimulate economies out of this crisis. How do you see the the, the future for construction and and planning in the medium to long term? Well, it's a very interesting situation in which we find ourselves rapidly after the commencement of the uh, virus spreading worldwide. As economies went into lockdown, we saw more and more the 90% economy taking place or taking effect 
on a global basis. And this is an economy which has less discretionary spend, less discretionary travel, where the focus of infrastructure moves from the use of city centres and the use of international travel to a very much more domestic scale of economic activity. And that has had a dramatic impact on the way we can envisage the future and the things we need to prove if we're going to stimulate economies and drive them forward. And this means that making the case to, as uh, the UK government has termed it, build, 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 or to exit the downturn and the economic impacts caused by the virus, those types of activities have to be carefully focused. And the case has to be made for the interventions that are taking place. For instance, when the ridership or toll revenue or fare box impacts of coronavirus are taking place, how can you justify new infrastructure? And these are the sort of things that policymakers and uh, planners are going to have to consider in developing their responses. And that's going to be important as well, because ultimately the investors who will fund the development of new infrastructure are going to need to be convinced that the infrastructure itself will pay for itself. It's going to have to look for a funder of last resort if the fare box or toll revenue or footfall is not as it as it expects. And that affects not just the infrastructure itself, but all of the things that go with it. If you're dealing with a town centre or a railway station or an airport, it will affect everything from the uh, infrastructure itself right through to the uh, the retail concessions, the restaurants, everything that hangs off that, and that, that affects the way we live our lives throughout. Having said that, there are types of real estate which look safer to investors even now. And in building their way out of the COVID-19 economic impacts, there are facilities that are always going to be attractive. Those are going to be things such as fibre networks, data centres, freight, and also healthcare facilities. And these are the areas which are going to be particularly attractive in the post-COVID world. And that is the area where I think there's going to be uh, a need for focus. Thank you, Howard. I'd like to talk a little bit now about the role of governments, as I think one thing that has become apparent throughout this crisis is that it's really only governments that have the, the range of powers and the sheer financial resources to deal with such a fundamental shock to the economy, to societies and to the way that infrastructure operates. So Colin, how do you see the role of governments uh, in this crisis and going forward? I think, uh, as you say, Martin, there's <clears throat> the role of government uh, through this time. There's been significant dependence on on government to deal with the responses to to COVID nineteen and and infrastructure, where a lot of infrastructure has has been structured, where there's a share between the public and private sector in delivery of public services. Yet fundamentally, especially where those where volume or demand risk related, let's say like some of the models that um, Howard has mentioned. Actually, in those circumstances, infrastructure owners and investors have very much looked to government to step in and, and shore up these notable services when they can. I think, you, you know, what it is clear is government has recognised that society needs some good quality functioning infrastructure. 
and 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 in part of that you know the procurement and other regulatory constraints that sometimes exist have been applied more flexibly during the current crisis to selectively support infrastructure businesses and 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 government has done that to ensure the sustainability and 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 the value of infrastructure to support the economy at these difficult times i think the balance for all of that and it's not necessarily just all good news for the owners and investors is there is a greater dependence therefore on 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 government and a government therefore applies a greater degree of additional control in relation to how it's engaging with the private sector and of course with every government there comes political issues as well and so government's attitudes can change dramatically in, in, in during the course of the period of time as it responds to the the crisis and also how politics come into play in re, in relation to that but as howard mentioned you know digital projects digital infrastructure uh, and health social care you know those are all important things for governments across the world at the moment and so the driving those projects forward and benefiting their their jurisdictions for in those sort of infrastructure is important for 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 governments at the moment Unfortunately, it does mean there will be other areas where there's only so much money to be spent, where there will be losers. And I think many would say aviation is a challenging market at the moment for obvious reasons, um, since it's very much a private sector driven air- airlines and things like that. I think, you know, the benefits received from other sectors, such as the railway network from government is different compared to the level of support that you're getting uh, in aviation. So there are some winners and some losers in the way that government has to choose and decide on which projects it needs to support and the infrastructure that it needs to take forward. I would add to what Colin has said, that the responses that different governments are taking do show the tools that are available in different ways in different locations. So some governments, particularly the UK, Germany, the United States have taken an approach very much of a shot in the arm through increasing spend expenditure through a fiscal impulse. And so that means that the UK is committing to projects like High Speed 2. And it means that in Germany, for instance, uh, the digitalization of a number of services and number of activities is very much at the forefront of the stimulus that the German government is, is pushing. And that likewise, they are looking at a green hydrogen initiative with an objective of becoming an exporter of hydrogen technology for fueling vehicles and to rebalance their economy on that basis. And when there are so many different effects worldwide, you then see other countries where the approach that governments are taking is very much one of holidays and deferral of liabilities because they may have a lower ability to intervene. The advantage, however, of that approach is that the liability remains and the question then is about when it will be recovered. All of that, though, does mean that governments have to consider the way they're going to intervene, the prioritisation of projects, the things which are going to be most useful as countries emerge from the uh, crisis. And it's very much a case of the invidious situation for government of having to back winners and to identify where they think the most likely, most beneficial stimulus is going to be. Thank you, Howard. So we've all emphasised the crucial role of government going forward. They're going to be under huge pressure to support and provide infrastructure both to sustain economies and societies and also 
to provide the fiscal stimulus. But that raises the critical question, how is this all going to be paid for? Colin, how do you think governments are going to juggle the tension between their role in infrastructure and the difficulties they will have in paying for it with big budget deficits and, and damaged economies? Yeah, I think this is the big question everybody's asking every government in the world where they've responded by spending billions to deal with the pandemic. But it's clear that going forward, governments will just not be able to finance all of the infrastructure requirements that they have or need to put in place, nor indeed do they have the bandwidth, more frankly, the desire to own and operate some of the uh, infrastructure uh, that will be essential for future populations to deliver the economic growth that countries will need going forward. Um, I mean, as we all know, historically, government is is accustomed to obtaining cheap and, and readily available debt. But it will not be able to find in the short term that it can use all what its existing facilities are to meet all its objectives. And so, in my view, there will be a lot of new models introduced on a very much a public-private cooperation. And we're seeing that already in across the globe in, in places like the US and uh, Australia and obviously in the UK. And looking at models where private sector funding will be provided an investment. And we need a greater degree of risk transfer and, and, and greater alignment more fairly with existing government policies yet still making the infrastructure investment uh, an attractive investment for people so i think going forward you know having shovel ready projects is going to be critical having procurements that can deliver faster to basically develop and sustain market confidence and interest and also looking at how we finance this we know the words pfi ppp have, have have not been a term that some governments have supported, but the private investment, uh, pro- these projects have to some extent stood the test of so- time through the virus and provide a model that can be adopted, albeit refined in, in delivering the objectives of lots of countries where we don't have the balance sheet to fund those. But alongside that, it's not just about the finance, in my view, it's about the moral capital. It's more important than what is the cash in the bank is. If government is going to provide support to projects going forward, it needs to do so with strong environmental, social and governance credentials. And so looking at government and how they deliver their projects and how they expect a visible evidence of responsible behaviour from the the, uh, private sector in supporting these critical assets um, will be a key thing that uh, if government is going to support and and deliver projects alongside the private sector, that will be the expectation they will have for delivery from the private sector on these critical assets. That's absolutely right, Colin. There has to be a symbiotic relationship between the uh, funding the infrastructure and the environment in which it's taking place. And I think we're going to see more emphasis on that. Take, for instance, the UK experience. The government is bringing forward new planning legislation with a view to promoting the development of housing in order to address a uh, deficit in the availability of housing in the UK market. If it is going to deliver that housing, then it has to be served by sustainable transport mediums. If that is the case then the housing has to pay for the transport that will serve it in order to be sustainable. And so you get this virtuous circle where the housing, the transport, the sustainability agenda and the finance all feed each other in terms of their ability to bring forward the change that's needed after the uh, coronavirus instance. 
And then you have the spin on into healthcare and education and other parts of social infrastructure that go around all those housing developments that you're talking about, Powered. Exactly. There has to be a real understanding that entire economies and entire communities are being developed rather than the component parts separately. And there's an element of integration that is needed. And I think also government, when considering who its counterparties are going to be, will be looking at their credentials, not just in terms of their competence, their track record, but their competence and track record as a developer, a funder, a deliverer, a facilitator with decent credentials in the ESG space. I think we can expect to see that looking for, look for much more in terms of procurements and in terms of partnering for delivery. No government ever wants to find itself in a situation where a dividend is paid the minute that a crisis takes place. And governments want to be able to ensure that the decisions they're making will respond appropriately to the news agenda. And that, I think, will end up hardwired into projects in a greater sense as, as the economies recover. Thank you. Well, we've made some predictions about the role of government in the future. Perhaps now it's time to make a few wider predictions. So, Howard, how do you see the impact of changes in behaviour, in particular on the travel sector? I believe that there is and remains a pent-up demand for travel. I think that whilst there is caution, history teaches us that eventually economies will return to something like the uh, the experience that we have today. And ultimately, we know that predictions for the use of infrastructure such as airports are that activity will return to something like pre-crisis levels in a relatively short term. The question then is what is going to take place after that? And the way that in a lower carbon world where the agenda is one of responding responsibly to environmental pressures, the way that new infrastructure will be implemented. And I think that's going to be very much at the forefront of the provision of new infrastructure. And then in terms of other predictions for the sector, what does all this mean for M&A? I think we will see and we have seen some slowing down of M&A in the sector, but there is also still M&A activity going on. But I think inevitably, given the uncertainties at the moment and given the practical difficulties of getting transactions done due to government restrictions, uh, social distancing, difficulties of travel, etc., we do think that there will continue to be some slowdown in M&A activity. But in the longer term, we expect that there will still be good appetite for M&A activity and other investments in the sector. For example, financial investors, as we know, have a huge amount of dry powder available and have had a very large appetite for infrastructure investments over the last couple of decades. So even if that scales back a bit, there's still a lot of room for plenty of capital and plenty of interest in the sector. And as we've discussed, because we're going to have this tension of governments desperately wanting infrastructure to keep functioning and to expand infrastructure, stimulate their economies, 
we think there is going to be a big opportunity for financial investors to work together with governments in the sort of public-private funding models that Colin was talking about. We think that investors will be focusing on their existing portfolios as well as on new investment activities. Clearly, there was a crisis period when they were looking at the short-term impacts of the crisis on their portfolios. But we think that they'll be looking at the longer-term implications, both of how the economies and the businesses will develop as hopefully we emerge from the pandemic, but also how the pre-existing trends that were influencing portfolios and investment decisions prior to the crisis, how they've been accentuated by the crisis. So, for example, we've talked about technological change, we've talked about changes in work and behavioural patterns, and also I think we'll continue to see the increasing importance of ESG values that that investors and owners are going to need to show that they are responsible and good custodians of infrastructure, especially in circumstances where they may have taken or may be looking for government support going forward. So we do think that in the longer term, there's going to continue to be good interest and potentially increased opportunities for players in the sector. But I'm going to turn now to Colin and Howard just to offer a final few tentative predictions before we bring this podcast to a close. Thanks, Martin. I think, you know, for me, the what is very clear in the market is that, you know, there is sharply rising government deficits uh, on balance sheets ac- ac- across the globe. And as a result, I think, you, you know, opportunities for private debt and equity investment will exist. That said, the new projects will come to market will need to, as we've mentioned, be carefully thought through to justify their promotion and in particular the benefits they bring of that infrastructure in a post-COVID-19 world. It related to that is the role and, and recognition of, of government in these projects and, as we mentioned, the rebalancing of, of risks and reward and potential new contractual models that will be adopted. Personally, I think the future projects and their related financing may have to adopt more sophisticated regimes to relate to payment, performance, force majeure, delay and other reliefs that have all been held starkly up front in the last few months as to how these contractual mechanisms work and respond to COVID-19. How I'd be interested in, in, in your tentative predictions if they match those and indeed others you have. I think that's very much the tenor of what I would say. We must remember that whilst the coronavirus pandemic is a human uh, story of many tragedies, we have to remember that the coronavirus crisis is taking place in an era of population growth in many of the major economies. Where there is population growth, there is always an opportunity for investment. And accordingly, there is going to be an appetite in order to serve the demand which continues to grow to provide the services and the infrastructure for life in all of the locations where that is taking place. And that, that's going to mean that the funders with their dry powder that Martin has identified are going to have places that they're able to put their investments. Absolutely agree that a uh, responsible approach to that, that there will have to be 
appropriate counterparties for government and they're going to be looking very carefully at that. The quid pro quo is that if government is being highly selective about those people it wishes to do business with, then they in turn are going to want government to step up to the plate and guarantee situations where, for instance, ridership or road use or uh, whichever consumer-driven metric is used to calculate the benefit is going to be upheld by government. And ultimately, that's going to mean that the covenant of government will continue to be important, that the uh, contractual matrices that support that will need to be carefully expressed. And there's going to be, as ever, critical due diligence at very high level in relation to projects as they they develop and continue to serve pent-up demand. Great. Thank you very much. That brings us to the end of this episode. I'm Martin Nelson-Jones, and I'd like to give my thanks to Colin Wilson and Howard Basford. If you would like more information or to discuss in more detail any of the areas we've covered today, please do get in touch. Any information in this podcast is for general guidance only and is correct as of the date of recording. This podcast is not intended to be and should not be used as a substitute for taking legal advice in any specific situation. For full terms and conditions, please see our website. Thank you for listening to the DLA Piper Infrastructure Podcast. Subscribe now through your usual podcast provider so you don't miss the next episode.